0: So we are on North Parade in Bradford, in the Record Cafe, and today I've got with me Professor Tony Collins of um, De Montford University and Beijing University apparently, and we talked about his new book which is called How Football Began, a Global History of How the World's Football Codes Were Born. So I suppose the first question is Tony, is given that carrying a football around or kicking a football is a, quite a natural thing to do, can anybody actually individual group or organisation say or a nation say we invented football.
1: Well you're right, this is one of the this is one of the issues that I wanted to deal with in the book that football's always been around. It's not necessarily what we today know as football but football football kicking a ball, throwing a ball, passing a ball towards some kind of goal. It's probably always been played across all civilizations around the world. Um, however I think that and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that there's no one modern type of the game that can lay claim to that it's the if you like those are all games are the parents of all the different codes of football whether it's association rugby league rugby union American football Canadian Aussie rules Gaelic football these are all modern games that developed as part of the modern world and that's really what I wanted to get over to sort of say why are these different from these old? Why, why are the modern games different from these old games, and just what is it that has transformed football from being something that for hundreds of years people just played, perhaps on your know, holidays, Christmas holidays? It was just a form of recreation, like almost like maypole dancing. What is it that makes it so different? And has transformed it into being just huge cultural, social, economic phenomena right across the world.
0: Well. I was interested in the title of your first... Uh, given the way you talk about how football has become this monster that is devouring everything in front of it, and when we say football, of course, we're talking soccer, that your first uh, title is actually um, The Failure of the Football Association. Looking at it from 2017 or uh, nearly... Uh, sorry, 2018, it seems an astonishing statement at first glance. So how did the Football Association... How, how did they so badly fail back then? Well, th-
1: th- obviously, I'm being deliberately provocative here, but I think when you look at... The goals of the people who wanted to form the Football Association, when they got together in 1863, their aim was to decide on a single universal code of football that would bring together all the football clubs, all the football playing schools, which were mainly private schools at that time, under one set of rules. And their model for that was cricket. But, as we now know, as it turned out, they couldn't come to any agreement. They chopped and changed their minds, they had seven different meetings, and eventually they came up with a code of rules that was, A, not universal, because the clubs that preferred rugby player rules refused to play under it. The set of rules that was accepted by the clubs that remained in the FA uh, really had very little to do with what we today know as modern football, so you could catch the ball, you could knock it down with your hands, Uh, you could even score touchdowns. Uh, and not even did the clubs that were members of the Football Association play according to the Football Association's rules. So, for example, the Royal Engineers, who were one of the early dominant teams in the, in the FA Cup, um, the, FA, sorry, the Royal Engineers played their own type of football where you could run with the ball, almost like rugby. So, in terms of what the founders tried to achieve, it failed business It wasn't a universal code of football, and it laid the basis for all the disputes between football and rugby that were to come over the next 30
0: years and A lot of people have uh, a bit of a revisionish history has been going on recently some people have tried to claim Sheffield as being the, the home of football trying to grab it for the north if you like away from the, the old boys of the football association is that, is, is that a myth? Um, it's, it's a myth in some ways
1: but there is an important truth in it but I think it depends how you look at it though if you look at it in terms of the rules of the game that Sheffield was the originator of the dribbling game which is what people try to claim that's not really true because when you look at the Sheffield Football Association's first set of rules they're actually very similar to rugby school rules and it's clear I mean there's four that are actually word for word almost exactly the same and it's clear that they took a lot of inspiration for their rules from, uh, from rugby school that's not to say they played rugby, it's just that this was one of the few models that they had to base their rules on. So the idea that they, uh, were, they rejected handling forms of football isn't quite right. But then also when you look at the rules that they played under, they're actually very different from modern soccer. So um, the best example is per- perhaps in the, uh, the first... Um, football knockout competition, the u Cup which was played in Sheffield in 1867 it was 1-2-0 but those weren't goals, they were touchdowns, the ball was down behind the post in a simulator rugby uh, there, was a, there was a form of handling allowed, you could knock the ball down, you could catch it, and so the rules really weren't the um, they weren't the origins of modern dribbling football that you know, a lot of people claim however on the other hand it is the case that Sheffield had an early form of football culture that developed. So teams were based on locality. Um, you know, the teams that were in Sheffield, by and large, represented different areas and districts in Sheffield, unlike the clubs of the FA who largely had uh, uh, names that were non-geographic uh, or represented public schools. Um, and there was also you know, local supporters for each club and so it anticipated a lot of the, the, the football culture that we know so in a sense it was the as I describe it in the book it was the first cooker with the football spring and you know pretty soon after that early 1860s obviously 1863 Bradford Football Club was founded A Leeds Club was founded in 1864 Club in Hull so Sheffield was um, was at the start of the process it wasn't the it wasn't the place that developed modern football, but it was part of that development that was taking place right across the north of England at that time.
0: You'll be telling me next story that the Webb Ellis didn't pick up the ball and run with it, and that wasn't the found, Is that a founding myth of rugby? Is that, is that in the same game as Sheffield? Uh,
1: it's, yeah, the Webb Ellis myth I think is very interesting because, A, he, didn't, he wasn't the founder of rugby. He didn't pick up the ball and carry, carry it. Um, there's no evidence that he ever did that, and it, wasn't only, it was only after he died. In the late 1870s, that this myth first started to emerge amongst old boys. Uh, one particular old boy of Rugby School, and it wasn't until 1895 that the Webb Ellis myth became officially accepted by a Rugby School, which, not coincidentally, is uh, not coinc- not uncoincidentally, is the same date as the Rugby League split from Rugby Union, which is all about who owned the game of Rugby, and obviously. To claim that William Webb Ellis founded the game cements the claim of the public schools. It's a public school game. But the other thing that's interesting about the Webb Ellis myth is that um, it kind of backfired on Rugby Union because everybody now interprets the Webb Ellis myth as being a story of how he was playing soccer, association football, when he picked up the ball and ran with it. But obviously there was no such thing as association football. And all the sort of football games that was really the basis for the type of football they played at rugby school allowed some form of handling, scrummaging. And so, in a sense, the William Webb Ellismith has been even more important to soccer, to modern football, than it has to rugby, because the whole thrust of the story is that soccer was the original form of
0: football, which, in fact, it wasn't. So where do the two diverge then because if the first FA rules weren't quite soft if Sheffield wasn't quite soccer, and if where Ellis was playing a game that was a mixture of all sorts where, where the two actually is there a date or is it, is it a longer process and we might think there's no sudden Monday afternoon where suddenly football be- soccer becomes soccer and rugby becomes rugby
1: no I think that's true I mean there's a gradual evolution of the rules and, they ex- and the thing to remember as well is that um, what people wanted to do at that time weren't just like people today, because obviously you don't see the implications of what you're doing in the future, you don't look 150 years down the line and think, ah, in 150 years we'll have a massive World Cup uh, and soccer will be the most important game under the sun people were trying different ways to to play the best possible, most exciting game and so they experimented with rules and some of those rules stuck um, and some of them didn't but what's really crucial I think it's not so much the fact they thought of in the abstract thought oh yeah I like the way that rule 13 is written let's keep that they were actually um, as they played the game the rules began to stick once the game had more importance and people grew attached to it and the most important factor in that was the the FA Cup so when the FA Cup started in the 1871-72 season it meant that in order to play in the FA Cup, you had to play the FA's rules. And that meant that the FA themselves had to make their rules as clear as possible and differentiate them from rugby. And so it's, the, it's actually when football starts to become important and clubs start to represent towns or regions or localities and they play in the FA Cup for their pride, that the rules become fixed. And they don't experiment in the same way anymore because, obviously, they want consistency of rules. Because if you enter a competition, you want to know what rules you're going to be playing under because you want to win it. And you don't want those rules to change from season to season because the advantages you've got of having a good team are, will be lost if the rules are different the following season, which was the case in the 1860s before the, before the FA Cup started. So it's the rules of football and rugby consolidate... Once they start to introduce cup competition, particularly FA Cup, and then league competitions even more so, and that explains why the rules of of football, association of football, once the football league was established in 1888 and it became the national sport, it's why there are actually very few major changes to the rules over the last 120 years. Um, you know, offside is really the only only substantially important rule that's been changed but if you look at rugby then a lot of rules have changed because it doesn't have the same pressures uh, in terms of nationally important competitions
0: Obviously Britain wasn't the only place where this football revolution was was taking place but if you think about the the British Empire or the British English speaking uh, world why isn't soccer the national game of America? Why is it the national game of Australia or New Zealand? Or or why it's South Africa?
1: Well, I think that's a, that's one of the great paradoxes of the, the history of Britain because normally um, most of the cultural exports of Britain are spread around the world by the British Empire. But actually, soccer wasn't. Um, if you look where it's strong, it's not really in the heartlands of the British Empire. Argentina is a partial exception, but that was only... What, part of what they call the informal empire it's never a formal part of the empire um, but the reason for that is that it was rugby that was initially the more popular game in the 1860s and 1870s rugby was the dominant game uh, more popular than than association was a lot of the reasons for that was because of the popularity of a book called Tom Brown's School Days a novel for schoolboys published in 1857 it was a huge bestseller the Harry, literally, the Harry Potter of its day. And the book not only popularised the rugby form of football, because there's a great, uh, in fact, the only interesting thing really in it to, to our eyes is the description of a, a rugby match, but also it made the point that for the public, English public schools, um, rugby was more than just a game, it was part of the education of a young gentleman. It uh, taught him morality, taught him teamwork, taught him how to be a man. And that book became incredibly popular right across the English-speaking world. And so the type of football that uh, first appeared in Australia, New Zealand, white South Africa, America and Canada was rugby because it it had all the credibility, the kudos of Tom Brown's schoolgirls behind it. And it was only really when FIFA was founded in 1904 by a handful of European countries like France, Switzerland, Austria and so on where the game had spread in a small way it's still very much a kind of uh, a middle class game in Europe at that time it was only when FIFA was formed in 1904 that soccer started to spread around the world and to the non-English speaking world which is why it's always struggled to gain acceptance as a, as, a, as a major code in Australia, New Zealand and North America
0: and yet um, Australia in particular and America in particular have got very different variants of rugby so how how, is that nationalism what's going on with Aussie rules and NFL in America
1: it kind of goes back to the the way in which people experimented with rules because um, in the in the 1870s um, the rules of rugby were changing constantly um, because it originally started out as a game as did soccer to some extent it originally started out as a game that was based on scrummaging, um, and the the it was very different. The scrums of those days were very different because instead of healing the ball backwards, uh, the each pack would try and drive the ball forwards. So it was a complete opposite. And the the forwards in rugby were very similar to the way we see forwards in football. That they were the players at the front of the game who were trying to dr- get the ball forward to the to their opponent's goal, but. It, because of the importance of scrimmage, it soon became very boring, and so in Australia, the people founded Aussie Rules. Uh, and Tom Wills, the founder of Aussie Rules, had been to Rubber Decided they, you know, this was too boring, and particularly as it became a spectator sport. It's not a spect- it's not a spectacle at all. So it changed in Australia. In America, they also found it. Um, they also found the constant scrimmaging boring. So they um, started to amend the rules with. Um, what you now see in American football as the snap where the ball is heeled back which is actually very similar in its evolution to the play of the ball in rugby league you tackle you start you put the ball down in front of you and play backwards and so there's kind of similarities in the way the games uh, the, the way the games evolved if they didn't actually stay at that that point and obviously American football introduced forward pass Aussie rules really got rid of the offside really. um, so the kind of whereas football stayed very stable in its rules because it had national competition, it had cups, it had leagues. Rugby because it didn't really have that apart from when rugby league was formed in a very partial way in the 1890s. Rugby, the rugby games around the world didn't have that, so they were free to experiment and it kind of you know the tree of rugby evolution spread out much further, had different branches, had a lot more branches than what than what soccer did, which ma- ma- maintained the basis of its rules for you know for 100 almost
0: 150 years. So why why didn't New Zealand, uh, Australia develops its own version of rugby? Although it continues of course, to play both rugby union and the rugby league, why didn't New Zealand have a, their own version? Why 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 is Australia picked up its very specific version of football?
1: Well, there's, t- there's two reasons. One, uh, Aussie rules developed very very early. So 1859 was when the first Aussie rules uh, football club was formed and so that was before the FA or the RFU uh, and so it was by the time uh, you get to the 1860s it's already locked into Australia it becomes a mass spectator sport in Melbourne earlier than what either rugby or soccer do in Britain um, so Melbourne is very much the, uh, the, the pioneer in football as a mass spectator sport so it kind of, it's locked in then because it has its meaning for its fans and its players Part of that culture. In New Zealand, um, much smaller country, um, and it looked very much, it didn't have the same sense of independence that Melbourne had. So it was very much, New Zealand saw itself very much as part of the ex- an extended Britain. And so it was more interested in games that had, in a sport that had a strong link with what they call the mother country. And so rugby was that game, whereas if you played Aussie rules, and there was Aussie rules played reasonably, you know, across a a few towns in New Zealand in the 1880s and 1890s, all the way up to the First World War. But all that gave you was a link to Melbourne. It gave you no link to the mother country. And that's what the, you know, these uh, new people, you know, in what was a new country, uh, you know, uh, British people had only been, lived in New Zealand for 40, 50 years before uh, football came there. Um... So what was this? So the rugby gave the new country a very strong link with what people still thought of as home, and you got touring teams coming out, rugby touring teams coming out to New Zealand in 1888. So you had that link. So New Zealand saw itself so very much as part of the British Empire uh, and part of that that cultural network that sport became part of. Whereas Melbourne, it was. A bit, very rapidly because of the discovery of Gold it became a very rich city, very independent minded, and its football code was um, was a precursor in many ways of football in Britain. So Melbourne was a pioneer but New Zealand was a follower.
0: It's really interesting because nowadays people say that soccer is Britain's greatest cultural export, but in some respects that's the complete opposite of what you just said, that, that rugby is really Britain's cultural export and it was the fact that somebody else took Britain's game to the world that's is it because do you think soccer uh, really took off in certainly you know since the 1900s onwards in the 20th century in particular same thing um, because it wasn't hung up with all that Britishness and, and what other people might think of ideas of empire and class and all that sort of thing
1: yeah I think you've hit the nail on the head I think the thing that really differentiates soccer from the other codes of football, that were, the, the rugby derived codes of football, was the fact it accepted professionalism and uh, so in 1885 there was a short dispute over professionalism and the FA decided it was going to allow professionalism because it feared that the, the, the top clubs in the north and the midlands would break away and form their own football association but what that did was that that gave it kind of, it gave football a much more meritocratic and almost egalitarian image of itself. And so it didn't matter what your background was, whether you'd gone to a private school or a university. If you were good enough, you'd get paid to play. And it was a meritocracy. And the, late, the introduction of the leagues it enhanced that feeling as well, that you were judged only on what happened on the pitch rather than you know, what, your, uh, what your old school tie was, which is still very, um, very prominent in... Uh, In rugby. Uh, It was also true in American football, it was very much a college, university based sport. Um, And that, but also by being professional, that also meant that football could be, in a sense, viewed and measured objectively. So, you know, you were paid for your efforts, Um, players' values were looked at um, in terms of uh, transfer fees. So, it could be so all so they could be valued, and teams could be measured by where they were in the league. And that kind of meant that the, uh, the direct control that the governing body had over a sport was lessened because you know it was governed by contract law, it was a commercial business, and so it wasn't deter- its future wasn't determined just by its administrators as it was in rugby. I mean, rugby union the RFU controlled every aspect of rugby, which is why it split because the northern clubs could no longer uh, tolerate that level of control but in football because it, there was a legal basis for it, it no longer the governing body no longer had that control and it meant, so, it meant that for example FIFA could be formed and the FA weren't involved the, the European countries said, what well, they asked the FA to, uh, to take part the FA ignored them, so they said well bugger it, we'll form our own, we'll own organisation, whether they like it or not, and that would have been impossible in Rugby Union, because uh, no, they are a few dominated, not just the national game, but also the international game, and so I think it's, it's professionalism that provides soccer with the basis to become the global sport.
0: But no matter whether you're a, an NFL fan, uh, an Aussie Rules fan, I mean, Gaelic football not touched on that really or a football fan in, in Bradford where we are today the sense of meaning that that sport regardless of the code of it brings to you that must be a massive factor in, in the continued popularity of whatever code of, of football you want to talk about
1: yeah absolutely, I think this is the, this is the key to football's growth and I think this is um, football stories spend too much time looking at the rules of the game and you know the first club to do this, the first match to do that Those are important, but the key thing that drives football forward is the impact that it has on people's lives. So by the time you get to the 1870s and you start to see local cup competitions beginning, teams are formed because people want to represent their local town or their street, their factory, even their pub or their church. And once you start to do that, the team becomes a representative of your identity and you have a stake in that team. The only time that ever happened previously in sport was so gambling that you, know, you literally had a monetary stake. But for the first time, football brought something that no other sport had ever done. It brought out people's passion for their community. It was a way in which they could express their identity. And that was absolutely unique. There was no other, outside of being in a war or um, a, a great civic occasion like a, a coronation or something like that there, was no way that, there was no other way in which tens of thousands of people could gather together in one place and celebrate that sense of community. And then once you put that together with the fact that people were singing... Uh, you, you could take part in the match through chanting, cheering, booing, jeering uh, you're actually part of the excitement of the match and sometimes, and certainly everybody believes it sometimes you can actually influence the course of the, the match it means that it's a completely new and unique form of entertainment and you can see this just in the word way that, vans that people use so as a supporter of a team it's always we you always refer to your team as we but that doesn't apply in any other form of entertainment you don't go to the theatre and say oh yeah we gave a really good Hamlet soliloquy or yeah, we, gave, you know, we gave a really good concert last night if you go and see your favourite band but you do with a football team and I think that's the kind of, that indicates the depth of which people felt that I, that identity and so for the first time ever, and remember, life's changed very rapidly in the 19th century. You've got the introduction of the railway system, you've got mass media, uh, people becoming literate so they can read the newspapers and discuss things uh, for the first time in a way that wasn't possible before as well. But on top of all those social advancements, you've also got this fantastic event every Saturday afternoon where you can go, and with thousands of other like-minded people, just throw yourself emotionally into this event and i think that's absolutely unique and it's something that uh, i think traditionally historians have underestimated just how important that is to the popularity of sport
0: and goodness knows where that's all going in this um 24-hour multimedia landscape and you can now be a real madrid fan and live in oslo Uh, goodness knows where it's going to take.
1: well I think that, well, that, that yeah you, you've got to wonder whether that changes the nature of being supported and I think sometimes you get that and a lot of, I mean you've always had the, um, the, the the some supporters have always distrusted fair weather fans and uh, all the rest of it everybody knows the terms um, but you wonder whether that's actually becoming a, a much more important thing because I mean, you go to somewhere like China or you go to you know, the Far East, and there are fans of clubs who don't have that same emotional investment. Uh, but it's just part of, if you like, their, um, their pan, fan portfolio. So cool. they, may, you know, they may be a Manny fan and a Katy Perry fan, but then five years later, they'll be a Beyonce fan and a Chelsea fan. So just t-
0: taking you back to the, the point you made earlier about you know, we didn't give a good Hamlet last night, in, in some respects, these people are kind of tapping into that. It's, yeah, I think, disconnect, if you like. It, yeah, I think it's that's important, important local.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point. It's kind of it doesn't have that same community aspect because I mean, I'm not just picking on them, and so just use them as a random example. Um, Do Manchester United really have to play in Manchester anymore? If they played in Beijing, they'd still get seventy thousand people a week going. There's obviously a logistical problems playing the Premier League, but you wonder whether the the way that football has developed and it's become such a huge international business, whether it's actually at a stage now where those old community ties um, are something that many clubs would like to ditch and then become, in a sense, uh, free-floating global entities that aren't rooted into the community in the way that they always have been. Having said that, and I know people say, well, this is a... this is the way that football has changed so fundamentally football's always been changing so when the football league was founded in 1888 people complained that it was transforming football into a business because the criteria for being a member of the football league was about commercialism and and that's the problem with sport once you start charging people to get in once you start paying players it becomes an industry and uh, there's that and so there emerges that tension between its community roots, its ability to express people's identity and the the day-to-day economics of being a business.
0: Well we shouldn't ask Miss story to look into the future really. I think it's a bit unfair. So your book, How Football Began a Global History of How the World's Football Codes Were Born is out now? And where can people It's it? out
1: now? Um, you can get if you go to the um, if you go to my website, um, Which is tcollins.org. Or you can go to the rubberyloading.com website. Uh, there's a, um, it directs you to a discount for the book where you can get it through a mail order, through Routledge. Uh, but you can also get it on, uh, you can order it from your local bookshop, but also you can get it from uh, major global online retailers that begin with a, again, with a discount. Hopefully it's still on. So, uh, yeah, so it's 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 available via the web, yeah.
0: That's fantastic. Thanks for your time today, Tony. I think that was a, a real fascinating insight to, our football has become this little consuming passion that we all love and occasionally hate.
1: Great, my pleasure.